Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at verses 27 through 38. It's on page 844 in your pew Bible. It's on page 1609 in my Bible, uh, which isn't as helpful for most of you, but it's also printed for you uh, there in your bulletin, so you can easily follow along if you'd like to do that. Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be on that long road back from Tuscaloosa after yesterday. Uh, You could be down at the Knoxville Auditorium for Disney on Ice, or you could be over at the movie theater watching uh, the Eras tour with a bunch of fifth graders who are screaming at the top of their lungs and doing cheerleading stunts uh, in front of the screen and just making your experience wonderful. Uh, You'll never, never, ever forget it. Uh, but the reality is there, uh, there's really nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the kindness and the beauty and the power of his salvation. So I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, uh, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, uh, we then become a people who love to go watch the Eras tour, we love to go watch Disney on Ice, but what we really love to do is gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather uh, together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series that we've entitled Questions God Asks. And I think that this is really important for us because, of course, each and every one of us, we have questions about God, and we have questions about his world. But it is also true that as we read the Bible, we see that God has some questions for us. And so as we've gone through this series, we began with God coming to Job and saying, let me ask you a question. Right? And then we looked at God coming to Adam and Eve and saying, uh, where are you? Right? Who told you? And then we look at God's question to their son Cain. Why are you angry? 
where is your brother? And then last week, Rob invited us into the New Testament with Jesus' question, uh, why are you afraid? And this morning, we want to continue in that line as we look at Jesus' question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 27 uh, through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel uh, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful uh, that you are a God, not hidden nor silent. But you are one who loves and delights uh, to reveal yourself to your people. And so it is our prayer now uh, that as we attend unto this, your word, that you and your kindness and your mercy, that you would attend unto us, that we might see lovely things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I, I haven't quite figured out all the lingo that the kids are using for dating uh, right now. I think there's this thing called maybe hanging, uh, and there's something called talking, uh, there might be something called friend boy or friend girl. Uh, and then eventually there's probably something called Dayton. And, uh, and, and within all these different sort of levels of spending time with someone, often there's this confusion of whether or not we're in the friend zone. Like, are we in the friend zone or not? And because of that confusion, it often leads up to this thing that back in my day, we used to call the DTR, right, or the defining of the relationship. And so when it came time uh, for the DTR, you would put on your Axe body spray, uh, you would make uh, the reservations down at the Oliver Royale to have dinner so that you could have the talk, right? And the talk mattered because the talk told you where you stand. And usually when you would go to that dinner, it would be a little bit awkward. Uh, you'd begin to twirl your mustache a little bit because you're nervous. And uh, you'd look across the table and you might say something like this, like, hey, girl, uh, I've, been, I've, been, I've been watching you. And, uh, you know, we've been talking and we've been hanging. And I'm becoming more and more curious about, you know, you and me. 
and then uh, and then you would like confess your exalted like you know for this woman uh like i really really like hanging out with you and you know maybe you and me maybe we could like hang out a little bit more you know just you and me like we could hang out and i mean you're smart and cool i'm smart and cool we could be smart and cool together and then you start to sort of tear up right and uh and you tear up because uh because you know you've become a vulnerable human being at this point and, uh, and then you get brave and courageous and you ask for the commitment and you say something like this, look, look, you know, like I'm with you. And so you could expect me to be around, right? You cool with that? Uh, you know, you good with that? And then, uh, and then, you know, as the Avid brothers sing, I'm yours, that's it, uh, whatever. Uh, and this is sort of uh, what's going on in the text. I mean, uh, Jesus is having a DTR uh, with his disciples. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, what's going on with us? Like, what's going on with us? Who, who do you say that I am? And by asking this question, what Jesus is doing, he's trying to define our relationship with him. And he does so by moving us through this, this curiosity uh, to a confession uh, to commitment. Right? From curiosity to confession to commitment. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. That's the flow of the morning. Curiosity, confession, commitment. So let's begin with curiosity. I think it's fair to assume that uh, if you're in this room, uh, you're at least a little bit curious about Jesus. Uh, some of you love Jesus. Uh, some of you uh, hate Jesus. Uh, some of you are mad at Jesus. Uh, some of you are confused by Jesus. Some of you are just trying to figure things out. And I just want to say to you, no matter where you are with Jesus, I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for being here, uh, and I want to thank you for your curiosity, and I want to honor that curiosity. And I think Jesus does as well with this first question, verse uh, 27, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus is? What do people think about Jesus? And that's sort of how most of our uh, relationships with Jesus began. They began with curiosity, right? We want to know who this guy is. We want to know what the big deal is. Uh, we want to know why it is we should care about who he is. And so we often come to Jesus sort of at this safe distance, kind of looking in at what everybody else is saying. And this is especially true for those of us that love academics. And it's especially true for those of us who love theology. Because it is very easy for us to primarily come to Jesus through the lens of what other people think about him. It is so easy to come to Jesus through the lens of what other people think about him. And so Jesus asked this question, what do people say I am? Or who do people say that I am? And I think that this is a question that many of us love. And we love it because as soon as the question is asked, what do people say about Jesus? We now get to talk about all the books we've read. Or maybe all the books we've written. 
or all the podcasts that we've listened to for the last 12 hours. And then we can talk about how in Islam, right, uh, Islam thinks about Jesus as a prophet but not God, or how Mormons think Jesus is interesting but he's not part of the Trinity, or how the secular mind thinks that Jesus was sort of a religious teacher, maybe even a political figure, uh, but he's probably a little bit dangerous. Or how we sit around and we talk about how Presbyterians talk about Jesus, or Anglicans talk about Jesus, or Baptists talk about Jesus. And then we think, let's be honest, I mean, there's nothing better than a lecture on Bovink's Christology, right? There's nothing better than a lecture on Bart's dogmatics. Uh, there's nothing better than uh, a lecture on Augustine's Confessions or the Chalcedonian Creed, am I right? Like, high five, like everybody's excited about these. But uh, of course, these are great things. They're important things. They're amazing things. And they're very important, and they uh, teach us a lot. But one of the things that I really love about the world is that there are a million different dissertation topics, topics that could be written about what other people think about Jesus. I think many people are curious about Jesus. There are also many people who are completely bored by Jesus. There are many people who think that Jesus is completely irrelevant. I was talking with a friend of mine, Hayes Acker, this week, uh, and I asked him what his non-Christian friends at West High School think about Jesus, and he just really struggled to find the words until eventually he said, I mean, I guess, uh, cool story, bro. And I think that's how many people think about Jesus. Uh, he's a cool story, bro. What do people say I am? Who do people say I am? That's Jesus' question. And I want you to notice then how the disciples respond, verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And so basically what we see here is that at the time, most people thought that Jesus was a religious man, who's a good teacher, someone who did and spoke powerful, important things. And so in other words, Jesus was a religious, moral, and political curiosity. I think that's how many people think about Jesus today. He's sort of a religious, moral, political curiosity. But here's the deal. Jesus wants to be more than just the object of your curiosity. And so he pushes us. He pushes us just a little bit further. Notice verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And this is a big relational shift in the conversation. Because what's happening now is that Jesus is making things personal. And that's the second movement. He moves from curiosity to confession. And so Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Not just what's the tea about me, but who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? And I just want to say this, I'm glad that many of you are curious about Jesus. And I want to encourage you, keep asking your questions. I want to encourage you, keep coming around. I want to encourage you, continue to be around God's people. But eventually, each and every one of us will stand before Jesus. And he will look us in the eyes and we will look him in the eyes and he will say to us, I don't really care what Westminster said. I don't really care what Heidelberg said. 
I don't really care what your mom said. I don't care what your wife says. I don't care what your pastor says. This is about you and me. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then with great boldness, Peter steps forward and he says in verse 30, you're the Christ. He's saying you're the Christ, meaning you're the great king. And not just any king, but the divine, eternal king, the long hope for Messiah, the one who would come and defeat all of his and our enemies, the one that would come and rule the world in love and peace. He's saying, Jesus, you are the great, eternal, victorious king. And so Peter makes this confession, this confession upon which the church has been built. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse 30. Jesus charged them to tell no one about him. He's like, good confession, let's kind of keep it quiet. And I think that's a little weird. I mean, I think if I was the great victorious king, I'd want everyone to know. I would say, let's start talking about it. I would not be shy about it. We would not keep this thing quiet. Now, why is it that you think Jesus wants them to kind of keep it quiet or keep it on the down low? I think it's because of this. Though they have the right confession, they do not understand what they have confessed. They have made the right confession, but they do not understand what they have just confessed. And we see this being worked out in the way the narrative works. You see it in verse 31. And he began to teach them. He's teaching them what is true about what they have just confessed. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. He was clear about who he is and why he came. So you see what's happening. What's happening now is that Jesus is beginning to correct their misconceptions about him. And what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, look, y'all want a victorious king, and I will be victorious. But first I must suffer. I want you to look again closely at what he said in verse 31, that he must suffer, be rejected, and killed. And then he will rise. And here's the point. Suffering, rejection, and death always come before glory. Suffering, rejection, and death always come before glory. And this is important uh, to come to grips with because as the old saying goes, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And so why is it that Jesus must suffer? Why is it that he must be rejected? And why is it that he must die? It's because Jesus is the true representative of humanity. He came to bear everything that we endure. And so the reason that Jesus must suffer and be rejected and die is because each and every one of us in this room suffer and are rejected and will die. And because he is the one who is the great victorious king, then he is the one who goes through all of these things in order that he might come out on the other side and lead us into glory. And I think that this is really important for us to come to grips with. It's important in the, in the theological religious world because what we're seeing here is that Jesus didn't come into the world to avoid suffering. 
that God did not come into the world to avoid the fall. That Jesus didn't come into the world to avoid sin. Jesus came into the world to bear it, to endure it. And by bearing our sin and by bearing the fallingness of this world, he then came to defeat it. And then in defeating it, he reveals his glory. And this is one of the problems that a lot of religions have with Christianity because we can't imagine a God who is all victorious and completely holy, who would draw near to suffering, who would draw near to sin, and would draw near to death. And yet as Christians, we believe that we have a God who's entered into the fallenness of this world. And that fallenness of this world made him suffer. It broke his heart and made him weep. And it even led him down into the grave. What God would do that? Our God does it. And that's actually the good news of Christianity, that we have a God who doesn't leave us in our suffering. We have a God who doesn't leave us in rejection and isolation. We have a God who does not even leave us in the ground at death. But we have a God who actually draws near. And he draws near to bear our sorrows, to endure our shame, to suffer our rejection and go down in the grave in order to come out on the other side and lead us through it and into his glory. And no other God does this. All other gods remain distant and they tell us to overcome. From a distance, they shout down at us and say, get better, get stronger, work harder. And if you do, you will achieve glory. Our God says, follow me, and I will lead you through it. Right? That is Christianity, that our God has endured the horrors of this earth. He was rejected, betrayed, and abused, and broken in every way that each of us are, in order that he might raise us up with him in glory. And I want you to notice Peter's response in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's kind of funny. Could you imagine sort of rebuking Jesus? I don't really know how the conversation went. Maybe like, uh, Jesus, I don't think you know who you are. Uh, Jesus, I don't think you know why you actually came. That's not what you should do. Right? Kings, uh, the Son of Man doesn't come to get dirty. Kings, the Son of Man doesn't come to suffer. King doesn't send himself to die. The king is one who avoids the suffering and sends other people to suffer. The king is one who sends other people to die, but he does not die. The king is one who did not come uh, to be served, uh, or to, to serve, but to be served. Right? That's Peter's rebuke to Jesus. Now, it seems silly to us to think about that, but I think uh, if we're honest, we tend to rebuke Jesus as well. I don't know what it sounds like for you, but uh, maybe something like this. Jesus, can we talk over here for a second? Uh, don't you know that you're supposed to make me happy? What are you doing? Uh, Jesus, can we talk for a moment? I mean, don't you know that you're getting this whole political thing wrong? Don't you know that this is the way it ought to work out? Uh, Jesus, don't, don't you know that your commands are a little bit outdated? Shouldn't we kind of like bring them up to speed with the cultural context? I mean, surely you didn't mean that we're really supposed to love our enemies. Aren't we supposed to crush them? Don't you want us to be victorious? 
I think here's the reality. I, th- I think many of us, most of us, are confessing a Jesus of our own making rather than the Jesus who made us. I think many of us are confessing a Jesus of our own making rather than the Jesus who made us. And this is why the text tells us that Jesus was gracious to speak plainly. He wants to be clear about who he is. And so he says, look, I came to suffer. I came to be rejected and I came to die. Because it's only through my suffering that you'll be healed. It's only through my rejection that there can be unity. And it's only through my death that you can receive life. Right? This is the Christ that we uh, confess. Uh, but the text gets a little bit harder because it's, it's not enough to just be curious about Jesus. And it's not even enough to just confess Jesus. I want you to notice how this DTR gets really serious because Jesus calls us to commitment. He actually calls us to follow him. And I think this is important. I want you to notice how Jesus responded to Peter's rebukes. He says, get behind me, Satan. And what this means is that as Christians, we must get behind Jesus. What it means is we don't lead Jesus into the world. We follow him into the world. What this means is we're not like Jesus' advisors about how to make him popular in the world. We don't come alongside Jesus. We're not equals with Jesus. Jesus is the king, and we must follow him. Right? And this is Jesus' point in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I think this is massive. This is huge because what this is saying is that in order for you to be a Christian, you must follow Jesus. In order to be a Christian, it means that you have got to learn to deny yourself. You, you have got to learn Uh, to deny your own visions for this world. And you've got to learn how to submit your body, your soul, your life, even your death to Jesus. See, what he says is that uh, following Jesus means that you will take up your cross. To follow Jesus means that you will die. And this really is the great paradox of Christianity that we must die in order to live. Uh, We must serve in order to lead. Uh, We must humble ourselves in order to be exalted. And notice what he says in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? I think it's a massive challenge because I think many of us came to Jesus Uh, in order to avoid suffering, sorrow, pain, and death. And I think deep down, many of us believe that uh, following Jesus is a technique uh, to get the good life that we want. And so I just do this. I just do that, then I do this, then I do that, then I pray, then I go to church, then I work hard. Life should go well. I think most of us think that Jesus came to help us avoid the fall and avoid suffering. That his goal is to make us healthy and happy and successful and rich. 
I think most of us came to Jesus trying to gain control of our lives. And what Jesus is telling us is, I have called you to lose your life. Not to control your life, but to lose it. To give it. And in losing it, you will gain it. Now, I think this is why so many of us and so many of our friends are deconstructing. And I think we're deconstructing because we've spent most of our time confessing a Christ that has never existed. We've been confessing a Christ that doesn't exist. And as we've gotten older, uh, I think what most of us find is that we lose control. And as we get older, I think one of the things we find is that the suffering of this world just sort of begins to catch up to us. I think as we get older, we begin to realize that life isn't getting any easier. I think that many of us begin to find out that even though I'm following Jesus, life isn't really working out the way I wanted it to. And therefore, we're confused by Christianity. We're confused by Christianity because we've been confessing a false Christ. Uh, We confess the fun Jesus. Life's not fun. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really not. What do we do with Jesus then? I think many of us confess the upwardly mobile Jesus. What happens when we're falling down? I think many of us confess the powerful Jesus. What do we do when we find ourselves following him in weakness? I think many of us confess the successful, conservative, progressive, popular Jesus. And that's the Jesus that we really wanted to follow. But Jesus tells us plainly, I must suffer, be rejected, and die. And if we're honest, that's not the Jesus we signed up to follow. And so, of course, you're deconstructing. Of course you are. It makes sense that you are. And maybe it's a good thing. Because maybe you can now finally uh, begin to follow the true Christ. And build your life upon him. The one who calls you in verse 34 to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Because it's only in following Jesus through the rejection and through the suffering and through death itself uh, that any of us will be led into glory. And that's the point of this table. The table is laid before us to show us the true Christ. To show us the Christ that was rejected and suffered and died. To show us the Christ that we have rejected because we love so many other things other than him. To show us the Christ that we've been ashamed to speak of. To show us the Christ that we have ignored and forsaken. To show us the Christ that we rejected and crucified. And this is the Christ who suffers, not just at our hands, but he passively suffers the indignities of the fall. He suffered the penalty for our sins, enduring death and doing all this for us so that he might lead us through, so that he might make a path for us to go with him through suffering, through rejection, and through death, so that with him we might come out on the other side in glory. And this meal is given to us by God as a sign and a seal of his promise to us that he won't abandon us that he won't reject us, but he will lead us through the rejection. He will lead us through the suffering, and he will lead us through death 
to glory with him. This is the promise of the table.